Good afternoon. It's Thursday, the 9th of June, 2022. It is 24 minutes past one. Many apologies for the technical uh, problems, but uh, we're de delighted to be here with the UK Column News. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Alex Thompson. Uh, we've also got Debbie Evans with us today. And uh, I think we've got a very interesting news for our viewers. So let's get straight on. And who should we put on screen first of all, but uh, our very own Boris Johnson. Um, we just had to uh, put this, uh, what do we call it? An image, a meme? or uh, An artwork. An artwork, allegedly. indeed. So here we are. The headline from the mail is, what a picture. Boris Johnson is depicted with his freedom-loving haircut and blue baggy trousers in a Ukrainian painting as he is named an honorary Cossack. And that's uh, thanking him for his support during the war. So um, what, what would we say about that, Alex? I'm almost lost for words because uh, as we're going to see, the damage this man is doing to the UK is uh, beyond belief. They do say, Brian, that Nero fiddled while Rome burned, but uh, Boris here is strumming his Kobzar or Kobza. Kobzar is a player. He's strumming his Kobza while Westminster and Ukraine both burn in their respective ways. This is an artwork which the Daily Mail has spotted, which comes from Chernivtsi in the north of the Ukraine, and a local band of Cossacks have proclaimed him a Mamai, who was actually the leader of the Golden Horde, which this has been left out, uh, left out of the piece, the Russians smashed at the, the Battle of Kulikovo Field. Uh, so it's actually quite a ferocious act to dub Boris, as this artwork has done, a Ukrainian Mamai. But there, and the artist, sorry, or rather the museum, that's carried the artwork is quoted by the Daily Mail as saying that uh, we can see that Boris is a freedom-loving chap because of his hair. Right, thank you for that. Uh, Debbie, I'm going to bring you in straight away for any comment that you may possibly have on this, but remember that this is focusing now in, uh, in on the man running the UK. What's your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I can't be nearly as eloquent as, as Alex was there, I think that's grotesque. I think everything it signifies is grotesque. Um, and I'm utterly speechless, to be honest, Brian. I mean, it's... I have no words. <laughs> okay, that, that's fine, because you, you're in the position we're all in now. We're nearly getting to the point where we don't know how to report what's happening in this country because it's, it's so bizarre. But uh, let's bring up a little video clip of uh, Boris, which uh, we can animate that now, uh, which was used by Mike Robinson. Uh, and uh, this is the man in action. But I want to get the public today thinking about this. What is he really saying? I'm going to suggest that he's saying this. We've smashed the UK communities to pieces with COVID-19. We're destroying the economy and, of course, blaming those nasty Russians for it. We've wrecked the NHS from within. GPs are gone, they're toast. Travel and transport are nicely chaotic. The monetary system is now completely fiat. The idea of men and women is completely old hat because there are so many genders now that we can't remember what's what. Climate is in and we conservatives are marching forward and the key part of his message unsaid is get ready for the Great Reset. Uh, now, I don't think there can be any doubt that if we look at the country 
Uh, it's sheer chaos. We've got rail strikes coming up. We've got GPs talking about going on strike, and we're going to be covering some of that in today's news. So the country is being wrecked. Why do you destroy something? In this case, it is in order to bring in the new. And uh, we're going to focus in on the Great Reset. You've done a bit of research today, which we're going to come on to, uh, Alex. But first of all, this is... Um, this is a little something to do with uh, payments, currency, um, cash in your pocket. It seems very simple, but uh, let's have a think through. And this takes us to Paddington, not the Paddington of the uh, Queen's Bear, uh, but this is uh, Paddington Station. It is, Brian, and uh, I'm sure we'll go through this in a moment, what's just been shown on screen. But uh, first of all, to set the scene for people, I had to come through the main railway station in West Central London to get down to Devon. And for foreign viewers, that's Paddington. It's not just a character that's a cuddly bear. That character is based on the railway station Paddington, which serves England's West Country and South Wales. And uh, when I got there, I thought, well, I need a quiet place uh, in which to do some work. And uh, strolling through the concourse area next to the platforms, uh, I saw uh, up the stairs in a quiet area, there was a cafe advertising itself as laptop friendly. So I went up there and uh, as, as, as you do when you're traveling with uh, heavy luggage, I barely registered that it called itself the Paddington Cafe. It had a nice interior. I went in and uh, simultaneously uh, really, with, with getting to the counter, I realised that they were putting a sign up saying we don't take cash. So I thought, um, I don't know about that. So I asked for uh, a coffee and uh, offered my £3.10 in exact English money. Uh, the first person serving me said uh, no company policy, no cash. Um, so I had with that chap to call his, his manager very politely. Uh, the manager of that chap said, sorry, company policy. Uh, but she offered very quickly to put me through to her own manager to call him out to the front. And uh, that's where what's uh, appearing on screen comes in, uh, because, because I'm describing to the uh, owners of the Paddington Cafe, uh, who turn out to be the Copyrights Group, that's copyrightsgroup.com, with no the, copyrightsgroup.com. I'm describing to them the owners of the Paddington brand and who uh, people who launched the Paddington Cafe on the back of the Paddington shop downstairs at the station, what went on. So I wrote to them, Dear Sir or Madam at Copyrights Group, half an hour ago I was refused service at your Paddington Cafe because I was seeking to pay for the drink I had ordered with an exact amount of legal tender in sterling coins. Uh, for the keen people who want to jump on this and say, ah, legal tender isn't actually legally prescribed uh, to be uh, obligatory, to be accepted, uh, for payments. I'm well aware of this, but I'm not going to stop using the phrase because it's in the English language. I go on, the first employee who took my order and her manager, who am I asked to explain why legal tender was being refused, both politely told me that the refusal was company policy, as if that outranked English law, or perhaps I should add custom. The manager of the manager of the first employee who took my order, a polite gentleman named, and I'm blanking him out because I don't want people making nasty comments at him, came out at the suggestion of the employee's uh, manager and told me that although he was not familiar with the phrase legal tender, and this is one of the pro problems, Brian, all three of the people in this chain are foreign born and good as they are at their job, they can't speak as native British people would. They don't have the same concepts uh, and, and banter. But he, he was sure that the company policy to refuse cash payments was justified 
because legal advice had been sought about it in advance. So he was clearly clued up, Brian. He, he had the line, we have sought legal advice. Well, I thanked this gentleman for his politeness, I as I described to the copyrights group. And since he, was, he, could, he could go no further than to say that this was the decision that the company had made, I replied that my decision was that your company policy was going to be discussed on UK Column News. I go on, I'm not asking you to set out your legal reasoning, which I know would be a fool's errand. And they, they have the letter of the law on their side, I'm well aware. Rather, may I ask you the following? Why have you gone the route of telling the store manager to trot out legal advice as cover in the first place, instead of telling customers who offer cash that it is for your sheer convenience that you have imposed the cash refusal policy? Secondly, why have you briefed the store manager to use the due to lockdown gambit in his explanation of why the company policy was first imposed, since your cafe was, if I understand correctly, only opened in November 2021? Would it not be kinder on the store manager to brief him to say that your cafe was deliberately opened at that time with no cash handling facilities and with no intention of ever installing any after lockdown was lifted? You get the point there, Brian, that I'm asking this because by degrees, by default, people are going to say when they see a really old shop or cafe, oh, this one's so old, it still has a cash register or till. Yes. I go on to say, had I managed, now, of course, uh, there's been no reply to any of this, but I thought it important to ask. Had I managed to obtain the drink I had ordered and had I laid my exact cash payment on the counter, of course, this doesn't happen because they, you have to pay before you get your drink these days, would your cafe staff have called the police on me? I shall take anything other than a specific no to this question as a reply in the affirmative. So on that point, I think by their omission of a reply, because uh, I give, have given them time to reply, uh, we can take it as read that Paddington Bear uh, would like to have called the police on me if I hadn't, uh, if I had paid cash for my drink and walked out with it. Finally, your announcement of the opening of your cafe announces, expect a full Paddington trademark experience. That trademark is very important, of course. I add, the character of Paddington Bear has just been central to the marking of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, and you played that out last week, Brian. I asked them, how do you, as custodians of the Paddington Bear brand, reconcile this company policy of not being bothered to take cash? with the wartime service, which was for liberty of Her Majesty, of Paddington Bear's author Michael Bond, who's widely believed to have created the character out of pity for wartime refugees, who of course only have money in their pockets, of Paddington Bear's illustrator Peggy Fortnum, she had a severe in in injury in the war, and of Paddington Bear himself as a character embodying dignity and common sense. I finish, I managed to pay in cash for a drink with your competitors at the other end of the gallery, at the lawn on Paddington Station, namely Costa, where Raffaele, an employee as polite as your store manager, told me that there was now no good reason to his mind while most of the cafes at Paddington now refuse to take legal tender. Well, they have uh, refused their right to reply within the deadline. Uh, they're called the Copyrights Group, and it's all about intellectual property development. So Paddington Brayer is actually a fairly hollowed out brand. They're committed to long-term development and retail expertise. The further up your chain you go, the more British it gets, basically. But at the cafe level, um, people will take me to task for prejudice here if they want, but it's all foreign tourists. It's all foreign employees. They're doing their best in Britain, I fully accept. And they were very polite to very you. Very polite to you, but absolutely so. But legal tender or the idea that we fought a war to retain liberty uh, and paying in cash is a key pillar of liberty, that is not in their minds. You know, I, I mean, I believe if I, if I got the accents right, it was uh, a Polish gentleman who was the store manager and below her. So I do understand that you know, it's not 
his problem and he is doing his best his best in the circumstance he was honest and upfront with me and uh, i would say rozumiem że to nie jest twoja wina i understand it's not your fault but i would also say to rafaele at the other end in costa who took my cash and sympathized fully with it i would say sei un grande you're a good guy because you you actually embodied the the british spirit of actually paying with cash and not seeing what the problem is if they're of paying with cash right and we've we've brought this story in which might seem a very simple story at first glance we've brought it in straight after talking about boris johnson introducing policy after policy after policy completely changing the whole style the whole look of this country and of course getting rid of um of currency in your pocket and forcing everybody onto a digital means of payment is clearly um, a key part of the government's agenda at the moment. So you've experienced it in this particular uh, Paddington cafe, but we're starting to see this across the board. You can't use cash in a parking machine, for example. You have to be able to use an app. So people and indeed, when you come down to Plymouth, Great Western Railway, although not some of their competitor rail carriers, but Great Western Railway, who are the main London to Paddington, the London to Penzance carrier via Plymouth, uh, refuse it. And they have an announcement, which I wrote down, which the, uh, the conductors call out. We are card only, they call out over the tannoy on the train, but we accept contactless as well as Apple and Google Pay. And we look forward to serving each and every one of you. Well, I'm afraid that's a lie, isn't it? each and every one of you who are prepared to pay with a bank card. Right. So we're coming back to this whole policy, the whole subject of where the policy, where does the government policy come from? Now, you, you've got a bit, little bit here that people are trying to fight back about this. So tell us what yes. this is. I won't read all of this out, but uh, last month or rather April, a petition was brought out and people are cynical, but this uh, this is one of the few routes we have left to make members of parliament at least debate something and get a reply from the relevant government department. It stopped well short of 100,000 signatures, but the Treasury, the British Finance Department, uh, did actually reply. So a petition was launched uh, and signed by 30,000 people plus to make it unlawful for shops to refuse cash payments. Uh, I do understand that the phrase legal tender is about being good for debts rather than shop uh, purchases. But here, this long and meandering response by the Treasury says, well, equality exists and it's really up to the shop and we're not going to, to oblige shops to accept cash. Um, and there was an access to cash consultation nearly a year ago, seeking views on legislative proposal to make sure that people can uh, take out cash within reasonable distances. Uh, there's been trials and pilots and here it ends up with uh, nearly £5 million of cash was deposited uh, in these trial locations and 92% of the businesses who used the hubs reported that they were more likely, that's no promise, to keep accepting cash because of the pilots. So banking the cash, I understand, is a problem when the banks are shutting down branches and being now a trustee of a local church in the Netherlands, I know that banking cash raised in collections is a nightmare, so I can imagine that. Uh, that this is a problem, you know, but if you don't legally mandate uh, taking cash, then it's a problem that's only going to get worse. Right. And of course, if we move in towards the digital currency, everything digital, then everything we can do can be tracked on a minute by minute basis, um, shared with the government or shared with anybody else that is in is in the club. And you've got an example of this from uh, Norway, where they want to be able to track what you buy for food products. Peter Emanuelsson is, if I remember correctly, a Norwegian. He calls himself Peter Sweden because, uh, sorry, other way around, he's a Swede who now lives in Norway, actually. 
Um, but he, he reports from Norway about the tracking of citizens' food purchases. This is the, the end point of this. The Norwegian Central Statistics Bureau wants to know about food purchases, and they were one of the first countries after the war, like a lot of the Germanic countries in Europe, to say, well, it's progressive and, and good for the citizens if we have a population register with a unique birth number. In other countries, that would be called social security or something similar. But that's all your digital ID backbone, uh, that number. And they are requiring now at the government level in the Statistics Bureau, they're requiring the card payments company, the card terminal company, to share detailed information with them on transactions. That's going to be linked to your social security number, your population register tracking number. Although in the English-speaking countries, we don't think in those terms, but that's what it is. The continentals are a bit less uh, uh, obscure about it. So uh, Peter Emanuelsson, writing as Peter Sweden, says that it's transaction date that the government will see, status of, uh, of, of transaction type, card service, organization, number of the company where the card was used, uh, total amount paid, name of the card user. That will be used to figure out exactly what people bought. And this will even go on to um, mandating that you use a bank transfer to pay for private health care so they can see who is being dissident enough to pay for private health care if, as happens even in rich Norway, the public health care system is too disintegrated to treat you or refuses to uh, give you some uh, non-invasive non uh, therapeutics, for example. Right. And you can see how this might link into the subject of insurance, because if you're buying the wrong foods, the inference is then that you're going to have poor health and therefore uh, the insurers are possibly going to say we don't want to insure you. Um, Debbie, this has got to be a huge problem, particularly for elderly people uh, to be denied access to cash and the easy use of cash. And of course, we're seeing for elderly people problems with how they can collect pension payments. That's also being interfered with by the government. Well, yeah, and um, I guess I guess it's subjective if people maybe call me elderly, but I'm struggling with it. You know, I like to use cash. I like to know how much I've got in my purse. I don't want to go even contactless, but clearly this whole agenda is over surveillance. <laughs> you know, we've got the health, the health authorities blending with the security services for UK HSA. So, and, and, and if you look at, um, you know, where we're going on currency, never mind Bitcoin, check out um, Rishi Sunak's Britcoin, you know, he's got Brit, B-R-I-T, he's got that lined up. So this is all to come and I'm not comfortable with any of it. Uh, no. It's, no one's going to be able to access it. And it, it, we started this segment with, you might say it's just Alex being peeved, but I did manage to shop at a rifle. And I do think that the owners of the Paddington Bear brand are held to a higher standard because it, uh, barely a week has gone by since the whole nation, old and young, ood and ard over the image of Her Majesty having tea with Paddington Bear. Clearly, that brand, that copyright was given uh, because Paddington Bear and the wartime creators of him uh, embody the best of British values. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been there. So the Queen was, was embracing the figure of Paddington Bear as part of the national sentiment. Uh, the sentiment put across to the nation, reflected back to the nation. Well, we're on the subject of where Boris is taking the country. First of all, he's destroying it, but he's destroying it in order to rebuild or reset. Now, you've done some research this morning, having a look at old reports from the UK column, where many years ago we were warning our viewers and listeners about what the reset was. What have, what have you found in those uh, 
well, older articles. I don't know who did the artwork for this, Brian. You might be able to help me because this was during my first year helping the column behind the scenes. Um, but it, it, the image, or the, the, the gentleman on the right, looks like Norman Tebbit. I, I don't think he's meant to be, but I might be wrong there. But look, it's uh, way back in June 2014, and the byline is, uh, is anonymous. It's UK column reporters. But we were putting on record at that time, in the early days of the website, uh, running a news uh, video service, that uh, in fact, way back in 2010, the then leader of the opposition, David Miliband of the Labour Party, was reported as calling for a reset of the British Constitution. I beg your pardon, he was, he was, uh, this was before the election, so he was Foreign Secretary when Labour was in the government at the beginning of that year. He was talking about a wide-ranging reset referendum. So this is back 12 years ago. Um, Miliband told the press lunch that we've still got a 19th century political system. So he said, I we, I'm calling for a reset referendum. Of course, we haven't had that in the 12 years since. And people can just take this as an example if they've joined us recently of the deep work we've done in the past. Uh, another section of the report talked about a wolf in sheep's clothing because in the year this was written, 2014, the esteemed Clive de Carle effectively found one of his segments hijacked by a guest, an ex-policeman named Ray Savage, who came out with this idea that there was going to be a bottom-up, uh, kind of a pseudo-real or astroturfed reset where there wouldn't be a referendum at national level. It would be right down at parish level. Now, the people who put this together knew the power of the parish level in all English-speaking countries. Uh, so referenda would be held there. This would be presented as a fait accompli, and the constitution would go. People in our chat box today have been noticing that all the English-speaking countries have recently started saying, even the ones under the crown, that they are now de facto republics. Australia now has a minister for the republic. Um, and, and indeed, we're seeing parish councils being used in to get state policy through. It's very clear to watch this. So you can very. see climate change, for example, being driven through the agendas of a parish council, which is very strange. Take, take us on to the money tree, yes. uh, uh, Alex, here, because um, in your discussions uh, with Mike Robinson and David Scott, this business of the, decons well, the deconstruction of the magic money tree, but the deconstruction of money is a key subject. Very much so. And I leave this to the two financial experts. David and Mike have been doing this podcast series of ours uh, on their own. But uh, I just thought that as you asked me to trawl for uh, further examples of how UK Column has been looking at the long pedigree of this idea of a reset and how it predates troubles with Russia and COVID. Um, this is a good example. OK, this was during the, the, the acute first year of the COVID issue. Uh, but David and uh, Mike were saying then, uh, that this build, 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 the early uh, example, the early uh, uh, version of the Build Back Better slogan, uh, involved an idea of a currency collapse and a great reset. Now, currency collapse is at the heart of this. Uh, when I was being vetted for my top secret clearance as an applicant to GCHQ 21 years ago now, in 2001, uh, and this, I'm glad I put this on record, although it's on internally, and you'll you'll never get access. But personal file four five six five one at GCHQ will cover this. I told the betting officer, there's two things I will not do uh, as a crown servant. I won't serve under a King Charles because he's disqualified himself constitutionally, and I won't serve if we join the euro because then the crown will have dispensed with crown currency and will not be a real crown. That is again why I made an issue with the uh, copyrights uh, group, the owners of the Paddington Bear brand, uh, because Her Majesty is now closely allied with that brand, but Her Majesty and Paddington sitting around that tea table have ditched the pound. That, that crown currency is no longer part of the crown. You know, this, this is a, a very fundamentally constitutional. 
whichever way you look at it. Uh, further examples, just for people wanting more on that, is that Ian Davis, first in the middle of last year, July 2021, and then in a follow-up uh, at New Year 2022, has written on the carbon reset. And this is how profitable it is, for example, to get rid of money and uh, physical money and to hypothecate uh, trades on environmental trades, you know, because you open a, then a, a four quadrillion pound new fake economy out of nothing. And uh, there is also from 2018, and people should read this carefully and thoughtfully, uh, David Scott was asked to do a think piece at the time, 2018, uh, writing on towards a model of the deep state. We won't go through all of that, but you really should read that uh, bit by bit and digest it. And his conclusion is this, and this is well before COVID and Ukraine uh, became acute issues. He says that the model of the deep state we have is unity above all, one world government, might, money and deception, the military track, because we just spent four years, hadn't we? Uh, certainly three years, Brian, talking about EU military unification. So the military track via NATO EU military unification and finally a Russia reset to produce the might. Again, you need all the money to be in, in the, the, the banking blob there. You can't have cash floating around if you want to do this. A corrupt international banking system creating the money, so fiat, as you said earlier, Brian, and a lying philosophy will provide the deceptive motivation, hence the censorship agenda, which we've covered so assiduously in the last four years since that time. And then David concludes his conclusion with this, truth, authenticity, and beliefs worth dying for are the deep state's enemies. So if you make a polite, very, very self-controlled scene, as I hope I did yesterday, and look people in the eye and ask calmly, what are you doing and why? And they say, sorry, sir, that's the policy, go away. Uh, then that's what you, you know, in, in a very cold but bloody-minded English way, you have said, that's my boundary. I'm not going beyond that. That's how we managed to overturn ID cards in 1954. Uh, an old-fashioned old liberal politician was stopped for his ID card and the policeman said, you're going to produce it later. And he said, no, even if I have to go to court. One of these days, and I'm not recommending any particular person does it, uh, think carefully, but if you one of these days lay your exact change on the counter, walk out of the store and have the police called on you and bring that to court before a jury, there's probably no other way than that to have an English jury say this is nonsense and we're overturning it, that the, the guy clearly paid. So we're, one of the, the key things is how we respond to these policies that are coming in, but that model of the deep state I think is spot on. Was this one um, still still valid? Because obviously we called that image up just uh, now. But that, that's the that's just a, a repeat of the same can, slide. Yes. Yeah. Right, so. Sorry about this. This is uh, I will uh, accept the responsibility for uh, the confusion with the slides today, uh, which is the reason why we have uh, uh, been delayed on air. So that's uh, that's not the resident Brian's fault. It's the visiting Alex's fault. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> do we? In fact, yes, we do go on to my. We we'll just segment. come on to just very quickly on this one because what we're really putting on screen here is another example of globalist uh, globalist policy through Agenda 21 and sustainability. So yes. what, what was the American policy centre doing Again, A couple here? of months old, but Tennessee is in many ways the most pro-liberty state in the union. So one of the most blessed places in the entire world to live is the state of Tennessee. Um, but the American policy centre writes up here that sustainable development is going on, cutting across the state level, uh, often in, in regions which completely repugnantly to the US constitution and history, these regions cut across states. Uh, so. For example, Tennessee and neighboring Mississippi form part of a sustainable region for some of these planning purposes. And I won't go through this again, but there was a plan called Region Smart, which identified 
development districts. They're, of course, at federal level, the House and Senate of Congress claim responsibility, claim the powers. Again, I, I would doubt whether they have it constitutionally, but the powers to say, oh, part of, part of this state and part of that state are in a development district. But uh, the legislators found the pressure on them because activists in Tennessee, this is why these, these states are so good to live in, activists actually live, lived up to their name, sent copies of an article warning on the Sustainable Development Plan and its consequences to everyone in the Tennessee state legislature. And these are some of the best educated legislators in the world in the Tennessee State House because of the, 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 the quality and quantity of these campaigners. They know what, 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 what they're uh, up against. So uh, it, the, the committee stage had been gone through but on the floor of the House, it was just pulled out. And also the Mississippi legislature next door got cold feet when they saw what had happened in Tennessee. So absolutely, it's worth keeping up the pressure um, on any issue, uh, whether it's uh, the continued use of cash uh, or the loss of cars because of sustainable growth or whatever it may be. OK, thank you very much for that. Now, let's uh, just come on to the subject of GPs and uh, bring Debbie in. Uh, this is a mail headline for a, from a couple of days ago. It says that GPs are threatening to strike over contract that will force practices to offer face-to-face -face appointments on Saturdays and until 8pm on weekdays. I read that headline with astonishment, with the memory of the days when GPs would actually come out over the night, through the night, in order to see local patients that had problems. But now we've got GPs that have got problems seeing people um, on Saturdays and uh, until 8 p.m. on weekdays. Uh, let's put in a bit more detail about this. And uh, it says that NHS England has lost the equivalent of 2,000 full-time GPs since 2015, and they're now an average of 2,200 patients per family doctor. That's surely unmanageable, isn't it, Brian? Of course it's unmanageable. That's the idea of the policy. In other GP news, a study from Imperial College London found a 41% drop in the contracts uh, children and young people had with GPs during the first COVID lockdown. Interesting to see COVID brought in all the time as part of the uh, rationale for the cause of these problems. The study published in the Brit British Journal of General Practice also found, uh, what it also found was an 88% drop in face-to-face -face consultations, but more than a twofold increase in phone and video contacts for those aged up to 24. Now I've put in the headline GPs bought by the sheer amount of money they're being paid and their practices destroyed. Debbie, you're seeing this mess develop firsthand. Yeah, we've been warning about this for quite some time in the fact that GPs are gonna, they're just gonna disappear. Um, and I wrote to my practice when lockdown first happened because it was like the Marie Celeste all the furniture inside had been moved I was peeking through the windows um, and clearly what we can see now is GPs are saying they're exhausted they're overwhelmed they can't cope they can't wait I, I think one of the quotes in in that article was uh, one had said sooner they left the better so GPs are generally disgruntled but can you imagine if they go ahead and do this because we currently don't have any ambulances we have hospitals that are overflowing we have recent footage i've seen on mainstream media 30 hours waits in a and e in some hospitals if gps go on strike that that the people that it hurts are the people that need the most 
So as a nurse, I've never ever um, been for any strike within the medical profession, nurses or doctors. I think we have a duty of care to stay with our patients. There are many professions that aren't allowed to strike, prison officers, for example. And I think doctors and nurses should be the same. And that may be controversial, but I believe our place is with the patients and the patients need us right now, now. I understand entirely why you're saying that, Debbie, but of course the GPs have effectively been bought. The figure is that uh, on average, they're being paid £100,000 for a three-day week, uh, which is a very nice salary if you can get it. Uh, but this is the other part of how they've been bought, because if we bring this one on screen, you'd identified this uh, uh, headline from Medscape.uk, half of GPs plan on retiring age 60 or earlier. And um, what else have we got? We're losing our GPs, but as we've seen with that number of 2,200 patients per GP, the number of patients are increasing. So they're paid huge amounts of money. They're working maybe three days a week. Are they really interested in the pa patient? Is that why they're doing the job or are they doing the job for the money? Money. It has to be because they're not doing it for the patient. They can't be. <laughs> it, it, they can't be. So it's got to be for money. And um, well, there's very little more to say, is there, Brian? I mean, this is not in anybody's best interest, least of all the patients. We've got people that haven't seen their doctors for years face to face. 63% still um, aren't get it, are only getting a face to face appointment. That leaves a huge proportion. And our job is to see people face to face. We don't just we don't want to speak to somebody on Zoom all the time. We need to be able to see them, to touch them. You know, medicine is about touch. This is outrageous. And we really need to be piling on the pressure because GPs are going to go and they're going to be replaced by community pharmacists and community hubs. Yes. At, at this stage, would it be fair to say that there is a, a different experience, uh, even in just yeah, taking the south of England, there's a different experience in richer and poorer areas. Now, where you are in Cornwall, of course, as a whole county is pretty poor. Uh, just flashing up in the chat box a moment ago, and I won't mention the name of the town, but a well-to-do coastal town. A viewer from there is reporting that a 72-year-old lady was admitted to accident and emergency there with no weight at all and treated very promptly and well. Um, is, is it fair to say that whether it's social prejudice or simply better, better resources, the wealthier towns and rural districts are still getting a more acceptable old-fashioned NHS service at the accident and emergency end than the other parts of the country are? Um, from what I can see, and I'm very glad that that was a very good experience, I'm very glad, but from what I can see um, and hear from around the country, it, it seems to be everywhere and it's a lottery. In, in Cornwall here, for example, we only have one hospital for the whole of the county. We've got 500,000 people that live here, but we have 5 million visitors in the summer. So the hospital can't cope with the population, let alone the visitors. In central areas like cities, whereas you've got more specialist areas, you're still asking people to come from rural centres to those central hubs. So the cost, the travel, the appointments, the waits, I mean, we're looking at a future of telemedicine and, and I don't see the NHS personally. I'm really glad that there are good experiences out there. And of course, we must highlight them 
In we my experience, I'm hearing more negative experiences than positive, sadly. We are also hearing uh, in the chat box that uh, someone went in for a one, appoint one o'clock uh, appointment in the afternoon with a nurse, presumably in a local clinic, uh, and the nurse said, I have not seen a doctor all morning. And again, that's not something that you would have been familiar with in the whole of your nursing career, is it? Yeah. No. So, no, absolutely not. A lot of, lot of questions to be asked, and I'll say from uh, uh, an area which I know extremely well, which uh, in the past would have been classified as dual income and no kids for many people. So the dinkies. The dinkies, an affluent area, and uh, people in that location absolutely complaining they still can't get in to see a GP. Now, Debbie takes us on to this um, discovery. There are a number of people who've been talking about it, but a job advert appeared, which was to do with uh, COVID. Uh, let's just pop this email up on, up on screen uh, because we were essentially highlight, um, alerted to um, a particular LinkedIn advert. And uh, this was the job. <clears throat> Deputy Director Delivery Lead COVID Pass. The salary was a civil service um, pay band one, which was £71,000 a year. Before I go on and give a little bit more detail, tell us about how this uh, came to light for you. Oh, wonderful viewers. Again, thank you so much to everybody that sends me emails. We can't have our eyes everywhere. So this was, a, was really a brilliant find. Thank you. But what, what are we talking about a COVID pass? What's COVID's, there shouldn't be any need for a COVID pass. So I was very surprised to see that. And um, I think they look at behavior as well on interview. Uh, 71,000 pounds to be COVID pass lead. COVID's gone. Aren't we learning to live with COVID? Why do we need a pass? Well, this is where the story unfolds, isn't it? Let's put a little bit more flesh on the bones because this is government recruitment service. So they're uh, showing this post, Deputy Director Delivery Lead COVID Pass. Uh, the date on it, uh, the closing date on it was uh, 23.55, Wednesday, the 15th of June, 2022. So this is absolutely current. Uh, here's some of the details um, and what they're looking for. People can freeze this on screen and have a look. But if we just expand a bit of it, it says that um, uh, uh, the NHS COVID Pass would be required to access venues and events in the UK and for international trade purposes for travel the purposes. sorry travel purposes for the foreseeable future covid covid pass is an award winning dhsc program undertaking a complex transition whilst continuing to deliver a vital citizen service in the changing health landscape. And when we're on that paragraph, DHSC stands for social care as well as health. So this may be relevant to care homes and care in people's uh, homes. I'm sure it is. We're building capacity in a team which has delivered award-winning services to the public during the COVID-19 pandemic. And Debbie, you were able just to get a, a little bit more on this. And I found this was this was fascinating. This is the civil service talking about how it really interviews people and what it looks for. And it says how we will assess behaviours. We will be assessing the following behaviours at the interview stage of the process. So they'll be looking at leadership, uh, making effective decisions, seeing the big picture, delivering at pace, changing and approving. 
So this is, um, this is getting deep into people's, I'm going to say, psyche. It's not just a question, have you got the experience, the intelligence and the attributes for the job? We're looking into your deep psychology to see whether you're capable of working with us. Yeah, scary, eh? I mean, you know, real psychometric tests going on there. So unless you're going to be complicit to, to, to their... To job description you're not going to be wanted are you so selective well, that's, that's what the big picture is about if you can't follow the big picture and be part of it you are not going to get the job and of course the big picture is absolutely everything to do with covid so there was some controversy about this and a question was asked in parliament uh, so let's have a look at this little video clip which shows what happened when somebody said what is this job to Desmond Sway. Why is his departmental leadership advertising for a deputy director delivery for a COVID pass? What's that about? The, the honourable friend, my honourable friend, in asking that question, I believe the reason that the department is, uh, keeps that uh, under review is that uh, the, the, although the pass has stopped and there's absolutely no prospect I can say of ever it coming back into place, that it is right that when we wind this down and work on the digital resources, uh, that, that it, all things that are necessarily looked at appropriately. <laughs> so what, what I find frightening about that video clip is the, uh, the false laughter and the chuckling when a very, very serious question is being asked. So. According to Sajid Javid, if I understood his rather waffly reply, uh, they're keeping this post open because they expect more of the same to happen in the future. Is that how you see it, Debbie? That is how I saw it, yes. And, and I think he was taken aback by that question, actually. And the ers and the ums and the pauses were, were noticeable. So, yes, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, okay, and Alex, you were quite taken by Sajid Javid's response there. I was. In fact, I looked it up in Hansard, and uh, as with subtitling, the transcription done by the stenographers, uh, there's no expectation that it is literally verbatim, but it is verging on misrepresentation, in this case, for the parliamentary clerks uh, via Hansard publication to have written that up as a coherent sentence. Of course, if people fluff their lines, as happens very often, and professional interpreters and transcribers know that, and sub subtitlers, of course you tacitly correct what everyone understands in good faith to have been the intended wording. But to make a single sentence out of that, uh, when there were four uh, failed attempts to, to launch the sentence, I don't know, well, the clerks couldn't have done anything else. I have seldom heard in Parliament, even when questions of, uh, of war policy are being asked, I've seldom heard people going to pieces over such a simple question. Yeah. So that put him under pressure. Now, you, you've been uh, very complimentary, Devi, about the quality of information coming in on emails to us. So uh, we've chosen a selection of, of emails and we're going to follow through on the topic. But this one was very interesting. It was talking about Pfizer documents. And it was saying in the latest report I've seen from Naomi Wolf on the information, the team of 3000 researchers are producing from the requisition Pfizer documentation from the FDA and there was a link and then it said still working on developing a way to get this information from the MHRA uh, regarding AstraZeneca documentation um, and the temporary use license so what is all this about 
Well, it's basically uh, people, and really, this is this is the power of the UK column audience because there are so many people working behind the scenes, trying to get information from all sorts of sources, and 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 I'd like to say a personal thank you to Cheryl uh, for trying to find the emergency authorization and the temporary authorization. Uh, advice and guidance that was given to the MHRA because nobody wants to release it and people are literally battering not not literally banging on but emailing and emailing and emailing AstraZeneca and Pfizer trying to get this information are getting stonewalled every time but I just wanted to highlight how much hard work is going on in the background and and how um, these pharmaceutical companies are continuing to stonewall pretty much everybody. And, and right, so we've got stonewalling. This is people asking reasonable questions about pharmaceutical and vaccine products. And we've also got stonewalling by the agencies who are supposedly managing that data and protecting us from dangerous pharmaceutical products and vaccines. Um, in this country, that's uh, the MHRA. This uh, particular headline that you've got here is one that gives us an indication as to why we need to pay attention. So it's talking about the Pfizer documents and it's saying that the US FDA hid pregnancy and baby harms. And I know this issue of vaccines and uh, pregnant women and babies is a very important one to you. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I could cry, honestly. The rule is you just don't, you do not use anything experimentally or pretty much anything on a pregnant woman, their unborn baby or children. And yet clearly Pfizer know exactly what's going on. And there is serious harm coming to pregnant women and unborn children. And we can see that on the MHRA data. We've, we've had it in freedom of information, spontaneous abortions. And um, it's just wicked. And I'd just like to thank everybody that highlights these these headlines for us so that, that we can pass the, the word on to you. Um, Debbie, there's a lot of hard work that's going on. Correct me if I'm wrong, Debbie, but I think with that particular issue, what has come out is that an earlier draft of Pfizer's uh, information uh, as submitted to the Food and Drug Administration, uh, admitted that the tests for pregnancy safety were actually done on lab rats and that the uh, Pfizer uh, lab rats uh, who had been subjected to the Comirnaty brand, which of course is another kettle of fish because there's some question over what you get uh, and what it's labelled as in the States, but let's say for short, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, the lab rats who had that, uh, that jab administered grew extra hips. That, uh, that's the kind of, um, of, of level of detail. And it was just scrubbed and replaced with a bland uh, animal test show that no, there's no real problem. And some legal commentators in the US are now reporting this as a Pfizer argument that, well, uh, we, we messed up, but it doesn't matter because the government colluded with us, the US government knew, so they're co-conspirators, so you have to throw the case out. That's very, very lay terms, I know. But uh, is that what's reaching you? And, and why are we not getting that level of detail from the British courts and the British regulators? A really good question. I mean, we're not getting any information from um, what they call themselves the regulator. I, I don't quite know who the MHRA are, but you know, as long with that, those Pfizer dumps of, of the papers that have been as well, we we noticed, uh, or I noticed, um, uh, I uh, no, it's a one p three six chromosomal d deletion that seems to be taking place, which could cause and would cause 
intellectual impairment and disability in children. So all of these papers are now coming out, but going through them and scrutinising each one of them is a very laborious job. So we all need to be looking at them and sharing the information because there's simply so much to process. Yes, and another issue is that not all batches are the same for which Dr Mike Eden's five-part interview, the last part has uh, now gone up as a transcript. That was at the beginning of the year. Mike Eden did uh, a session with that. That's Rainer Fulmich's session 86 of the Stiftung Corona Ausschuss. So if you follow that from the front page and follow the links backwards, you will see that Eden has given a, a testimony that took us five transcripts to do regarding the problems of differences between the batches of these jabs. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting a number of reports, number, we're getting many reports uh, from people across the country who say that they are suffering from vaccine adverse reactions. And this particular one that you picked out, Debbie, uh, gives an indication of how serious these things are. So if we just pop this one on screen, uh, a gentleman called Christopher is saying 15 months ago, this was me after my AZ jab gave me brain tissue damage due to demyelination, if I pronounce that, uh, that correctly, my prognosis... Which is the loss of the sheath around the nerve. Okay, is MS and or dementia in my uh, future too. In my future, two consultants told me on the ward. I um, now don't work due to severe fatigue and migraines. I was once, once healthy and loved to travel. Uh, these are really, really serious adverse effects. And of course, many months ago, we published the testimony of a lady uh, whose husband ended up, first of all, unable to walk and then paralysed from the neck down. And as a result, UK column was banned from YouTube. But these reports of vaccine adverse reactions are growing and growing, and they're spreading across a whole, um, a whole range of different uh, symptoms. Yeah, and um, I am in touch with this gentleman and we will be interviewing him because he's very keen to tell his story and it's absolutely tragic. These people are going through hell, literally, physically, psychologically, emotionally. They have no help, they're being given no advice and they're being given no reassurance and their voices are not being heard. And these are the people that did what they were told to do, trusted the science, trusted the experts. And now when they need help, there is no help. And I feel so strongly about this that people like us that do have the strength to speak up need to, need to work in unity and solidarity with all of these vaccine victims, because none of it is imaginary. They're all real. They all exist. They're all real lives of people. And we need to get their voices heard. And I'm so grateful to all of those that have contacted me because many of them are very poorly and it's very difficult to talk to somebody when you're not feeling very well. So I really am. I feel very passionate about it. And I'm very, very humbled to be talking to these people and we will do everything we can to focus attention on getting help and answers. And that of course is the key problem, Debbie, isn't it? That they can't get help. Now you were able to source this uh, letter, which has come from a, a lady MP. Um, 
And uh, this is uh, Maggie Throop, MP, Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Vaccines and Public or Health. Or rather, it's to her by Damien Collins, who is the constituency MP for the sufferer in question, Mrs Crichton. Uh, okay, but we've got a response. We've got a response in this letter. Let's just have a look at what it's having to, to uh, say here. Um, so we bring this up on screen. Dear Damien, thank you for your correspondence, correspondence of the 28th of March to the Right Honourable Sajid Javid. I was very sorry to read of Mr Crichton's health problems and I'm grateful to you for raising her concerns. Sorry, that's Ms Crichton. There are currently no active parliamentary reviews of the Vaccine Damage Payment Act, and we do not believe that now is an appropriate time for such a review. Our focus must be on, quote, scaling up the operation of the VDPS by the NHS Business Services Authority so that we can process claims and get support to those who need it. A review would risk delaying this work. But Debbie, everything we're seeing, and Christopher Chope has been speaking out on this, is that nothing is happening with regard to getting uh, any form of compensation out to people who've suffered vaccine injury. No, and, and you know what, when I speak to all of these victims of vaccine injury and people suffering, it's not the, the money they actually want, it's the help, it's the tests, it's to feel better. But I mean, let's just look at Maggie Thrupp for a minute because Maggie Thrupp got laughed off question time at Christmas when she was trying to defend Boris Johnson for Partygate. She came really big time unstuck. Maggie Thrupp is a biomedical scientist with a specialist in haematology. That's blood. So she should know something about what's going on with regards to serious adverse reactions. She got a BSc from, from Manchester. Mad, Maggie Thrupp was investigated for spending too much money in her campaign election, uh, you know, in her local constituency. So she's responsible for the supply of PPE, shielding, vaccine deployment, and she's the lead minister in crisis response. God help us is all I can say. And she's also responsible for gender identity. So, you know, this, this woman has got an awful lot of power, um, but she doesn't have to have, she doesn't appear to have an awful lot of common sense. Be a ministerial portfolio, Debbie, in which the golden thread is helping pharmaceuticals to make a lot of money. If you read them all out, that seems to be the, the, the common factor. Or perhaps to use the word in, in Throop's letter back against her, it would not be appropriate for us to draw these conclusions. Uh, not appropriate, which is a word appropriate, loved by the MPs. Let's finish off uh, a little bit of the letter. At least it's got a wet signature, which shows something, because many of these documents don't. Uh, but if we just expand it on screen. It says, unfortunately, as the COVID-19 vaccines are new, it's taken some time for the science surrounding the vaccines and any adverse effects associated with them to reach a more settled position. Ah, settled isn't, science. Isn't this saying that originally they did not know what these uh, vaccines were going to do to people? They still don't know. Isn't that what that sentence says? Yes, Brian, it is. Right. Yeah. So to ensure that every claim made to the VDPS was treated fairly and equally and to avoid any claimants being disadvantaged, no claims were pro processed until this point was reached. Oh, we're getting but, somewhere now. We well, haven't had this admission before. <laughs> This is why this document is just so incredible. 
we, we are admitting in it that we didn't really know whether the vaccines were going to cause damage or not. We've now got people coming forward who've been damaged, but we're not going to let them make a claim because it wouldn't be fair till everybody can make a claim. I wonder whether Alex Mitchell, who's on the front page of the UK, UK column website at the moment and others, perhaps have the makings of a case in this, this admission that they were held in a queue and not being tell, told they were held in a queue. Well, I sincerely hope, Alex, that Sir Christopher Choate will be able to assist on this. Um, but if we end off the uh, letter, the final paragraph is, with regard to Ms Crichton's treatment, I would urge her to raise her concerns with the local clinical commissioning group that is responsible for commissioning health services in her, in her area. This is a despicable thing to say because, of course, what the clinical commissioning group will say is we follow government policy. So to my mind, Debbie, uh, this poor lady is just being sent round in a never ending circle. And just for the foreign viewers, the CCG is the local part of Britain's NHS that really is still the National Health Service core. You know, it's still taxpayer funded. So people assume the whole thing is, but only the CCGs are. That's the importance of Brian's comment there, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, this, this lady is unwell and she's being asked to navigate her way through this barrage of red tape in order to prove what's on her diagnosis. And I mean, many of these victims actually have vaccine damage as a cause on their medical diagnosis. So nobody's making this up, but we're expecting people to, to literally be passed around in a wicker basket fighting for what for what they deserve and what they need when they're poorly this is and torture just to back up what you've said there debbie we've seen on screen here in the chat box that alex mitchell has now tweeted no doubt entirely unrelated to the publicity by uk column and the delling pod but uh, that cynicism aside he now has had a call back from the managers of the vaccine damage payment scheme which as we've seen here uh, has been outsourced as of a few months ago from the Department of Health to the NHS Business Services Authority. And the manager said, ever so sorry, we now are now processing you and the first batch of claimants, and we should have some kind of decision within 12 weeks. So as you say, Debbie, uh, Alex Mitchell is at the most at the upper end of eloquence and, and ability to think and speak. He, he's been physically very bad, badly affected, but cognitively and, and eloquently, he hasn't. Many others have, and they are still fighting their way through this, as you say, Debbie. Right, well, I'm going to bring this one up on screen as well to ram this point home. This is uh, communications in relation to vaccine and vaccine types. And in the letter, it, it is very small print and there's a little bit of distortion in the image, but people can freeze this particular screen and look at the detail. Uh, but essentially the conversation is uh, somebody who's, who is at risk of um, thrombocytopenia events um, should they be mi mixing vaccines? And uh, the uh, particular person is saying, well, I was categorically told not to mix vaccines, uh, yet they went ahead regardless of the lack of data. So this is an exchange of correspondence. But we're seeing this across the board, Debbie, that when people go back to the authorities who should, be, uh, should have responsibility for protecting people's health, uh, they either don't know the answer or they obfuscate or they refer to another government department in, all, in order to um, avoid having to reply or delaying the reply, even if somebody's suffering severe adverse reactions. Yeah, they just blame 
other people. It's just a blame game the whole way round. And, you know, don't you remember right at the beginning of this, uh, some vaccines had to be put in a freezer. I think Jonathan Van Tam was very proudly saying he pretty much bought every freezer available because uh, the Pfizer had to be frozen. And then we were told that it shouldn't be mixed. Then we were told that, that different manufacturers could be mixed. And yet, if you look at the manufacturer's guidance, they say it shouldn't, you shouldn't mix brands. It's the government and the MHRA who say it's okay to mix brands, but the pharmaceutical companies and the manufacturers aren't that keen. So there you go. There's a, a, another, another mess. And we've seen in this case, if you press hard and know what you're pressing for, then you will get the lead pharmacist for a given English region in the NHS or equivalent in other UK countries. The pharmacists in the National Health Service will say this mix and match doesn't apply to those at risk of thrombos thrombotic episodes. But again, as you say, Debbie, that's separate from the government at itself at Whitehall level, which has been doing what the pharmaceuticals uh, have sometimes not counselled it to do. Yeah. OK, well, before we have a look at a video clip of June Rain talking about uh, the vaccine yellow card system, uh, this is a particularly interesting tweet. Uh, the original tweets from a gentleman called Maestro McStay, and he says, my wife now can't get life insurance because the vaccine caused a blood clot in the brain. And this was forwarded on by Natasha Forder. Thank you very much, Natasha. And she says maybe somebody at the MHRA could help explain why Gary's wife is unable to get any life insurance due to a vaccine injury. There certainly weren't any warnings about this in the patient safety leaflets for the vaccines that I saw. So here again, we're seeing that people are suffering terribly and they can't get the insurance to protect their lives from here on. But they can't get answers to reply to the insurance companies because the data on vaccine safety is being withheld within the government system. I'm out of words to describe well, we don't this. Don't want to go too off track, Brian. But uh, the, the insurance industry really got your goat a few years ago when you realised that they were sitting on data with regard to child abuse and the liability of local authorities because of social services or other ways in which children had been interfered with. And we drew out at the time quite forcefully that the insurance companies and the top of their tree is the International Reinsurance Network, which is basically uh, Swiss and Munich based and Northern Italian based and a bit of City of London. They were putting pressure on the individual insurers, which insured the local councils, never to admit liability and even never to apologise and certainly not to disclose data on people. Right, Alex, that's a really good point, because if we, we just finished off that little circle, this was in relation to child abuse in North Wales. Mm. And the insurers were advising local councillors on a daily basis how they should respond to the public in order uh, to effectively protect the council from any litigation and come back onto the insurers themselves. And if that was happening to cover up child abuse, I think it's a reasonable bet to believe that uh, the same thing is happening in order to protect the pharmaceutical companies. There is one more part of this trifecta we must mention, which is that David Scott has brought out in his speech, Scotland's Secret Shame, available on the UK Column website, pressed this with regard to Scottish legal firms and uh, knowledge of child abuse by elite figures. And what he brought out there is that as a legal firm, as solicitor, um, you have to be insured, master uh, insurance for uh, legal liability, for indemnity. And that means you have to cough up your liabilities, vulnerabilities and skeletons in closet 
closets to, reinsure, to an insurance scheme which is run by the leading legal firms. And they know all your secrets and can pressurize you. And if you don't tell them what's what, you will lose your master insurance and will no longer be fit to practice. And in, with, with, you know, mutantis mutandis, that applies to, to local councils. They don't lose their license to business, but they can, to, to, but they license to practice, but they can go bust as American counties sometimes do. And it applies to pharmaceuticals too. So the insurers are the key node because they know everyone's secrets and they can tell everyone what to admit to and what to hide. And ultimately, if we go through the digital currency, they're going to know what you eat and what you buy. Again, that's and insurance, yes. Indeed. Right, let's look at this little video clip. I've got to say, as always, Debbie, thank you very much for sourcing this because you are the one who's been paying attention almost on a daily basis to what the MHRA has been saying. So for the UK public as a whole, very often um, information from MHRA is there, but it's hidden in plain sight. Let's have a look and listen to this video clip and then we can discuss what the lovely June Rain says. And see efficacy of that level, we certainly hadn't expected it. Uh, we spent a long time in our regulatory discussions talking about maybe 50%. And so that hope that came from that level of efficacy was truly, truly inspirational. We adapted our pharmacovigilance further building on the yellow card, establishing a vaccine monitor to look in more intense detail at a cohort. And that's going to be very important for areas such as pregnancy, but also using advanced digital tools, artificial intelligence to sift through reports. We had expected 100,000. We're now over 400,000. We can't employ enough scientists and clinicians and statisticians to deal with each one. And so the tools of artificial intelligence support picking up trends. And then the minds can be usefully employed on what they're telling us. And as you might expect, we're picking up and running with what the life sciences vision has suggested. We're concerned, of course, about things like TTS, the thrombotic thrombocytopenia syndrome. But will the clue be in genetics? And so we're going to be establishing a yellow card biobank out of the yellow card data, enabling us to look for those genetic clues, marry it up with, I think you can see in the next slide, our electronic healthcare records for phenotype. And then researchers will be able to come to us and say, look, let's, let's look at the data you have, use the linkages, and ultimately, if we strike gold, there will be screening tools that enable genetic uh, uh, aspects to be screened out. No more TTS, which has been a source of such concern to all of us. And then to our offer, and I think this is where Alistair would have been so pleased, building on all of this to deliver an innovative licensing and access pathway. What does that truly mean? What is different? It builds on the principle of fix it while you fly, but it also brings everyone on board from the NHS to the health technology assessment. And that integrated view at the very outset of drug development will enable a more bespoke pathway to be followed, taking some of the uncertainties out of drug development and a smoother pathway. And yes, we've given ourselves a performance goal, IOM would be pleased, of reducing the development pathway by half. And will we make it? I think we're on our way. What it looks like in practice is that uh, concerted blue pathway 
where everyone is feeding in, not just the NHS and the HTA colleagues, but patient groups describing what they think patient reported outcomes should be measuring. And with that iterative regulatory review, we put up front a lot of decision making that means that the final decision on benefit risk should be a well-prepared one. The first innovation passport, yes, was for something pretty rare, von Hippel Lindau, granted in April, and that was a very successful partnership. But I'm pleased to say that not everything coming through ILAP, as we call it, is as rarefied, thankfully. There are commoner conditions, metastatic breast cancer, for example. Drugs licensed while you wait, Brian. Yellow card data becomes a unique selling point, doesn't it? Uh, we've, we've scanned the genetics and uh, we haven't told the people who filed the reports, but now we know that uh, you know, we can have an accelerated pathway to drug uh, licensing for this particular unit. I mean, June rain is never pleasant, but I prefer the June rain on the uh, Plymouth Sound behind us to the June rain we've just been hearing speak there. Well, you've, you've come straight in on the point. I also picked up that in the chat box, Alex, somebody said, hang on a minute, this is research for Big Pharma. Yes. And of course, that is exactly what this lady's dis discussing. But I'll come back to you, Debbie. I picked up a few of the sort of buzzwords she was using. But what, what, what caught your attention when you originally saw this, this little clip? Well, pretty much everything caught my attention. And I had to replay it a few times to make sure that I was hearing it properly. But you know, she was expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions, but I'm ever so sorry. We haven't got enough people to sift through them. So if you're lucky, uh, you might get picked out and then you go to the yellow card biobank where you'll get genetic testing and you may get some answers then. But apart from that, your data is pretty much going to researchers and pharma and fix it while you fly. I mean, excuse me, fix it while you fly. What is she referring to? That we're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to see serious adverse. Oh, it doesn't matter. If that happens, we'll fix it down the line somewhere. Is, is, am I interpreting, am I being unfair? No, no, because in, in idioms, uh, flying is about a feedback loop, isn't it? So people use uh, the verb fly in idioms when they are tacitly, tacitly acknowledging that the process isn't off to a T yet. Hence expressions like fly by the seat of your pants or high flyer, right? So there's, there's a, a subconscious admission here that the process is getting away with what it can and that there is a hope that it will not fall apart. And that's why we've got you on this programme, Alex. Thank you for that. Yeah, well, my, my points as I went through is I picked up on the fact that she was casually saying, well, there's been too many adverse effects coming through. We couldn't possibly expect a human being to cope with them. There's so many. So we've sort of got AI systems sort of looking at this information, but there's nothing about pa patient safety in what she's talking about. As the astute person in the chat box has identified, this is all about making a system to enable the pharmaceutical companies to get their products onto the market faster. They're not worried about damage to people. So I, I found that particularly uh, worrying. And the idea of a biobank to uh, suck in all this data uh, just rams it home that they need the data in order to um, get the pharmaceutical products on the market quicker for more profits.
Debbie, do you want to come back there on something? Yeah, I just wanted to highlight too that, you know, Mike Robinson has been talking a lot about AI and how the MHRA are meant to be operating on this super duper million, goodness knows how many million pounds AI operating system. And that's what she's referring to there, that people are going to get picked out by AI. But we know from the freedom of information requests that I've had from June Rain that they're not using the AI because they're making mistakes. So they can't have it both ways. They're either using AI and the AI is incorrect or they're lying. And I suspect it's the latter. Yes, I also think that. Well, we just put up your uh, book that you've shown a couple of times, COVID Vaccine Adverse Reaction Survival Guide. This is a very critical thing, isn't it? Because uh, all the people that have suffered an adverse reaction are in a desperate plight because they simply don't know where to go. And the truth of the matter is that really we are learning what can be done on a day-by-day, piece-by-piece basis. So where people are trying to put a cohesive package together saying this is what you can do if you're suffering from adverse reactions, we've got to welcome it. Yeah, and you'll be delighted. Well, everyone will be delighted to know that we're in contact with Caroline and we'll be speaking to her very soon. Um, and we'll be speaking to many other people as well. But this is amazing. And it, and it, it really is, again, you know, it's a survival guide. People don't have anything else. There isn't anything else on the market. This is it, but it's brilliant. So I would, I would really urge people to go and have a look. And thank you, Caroline. Okay, thank you for that, Debbie. Well, before we're getting towards the close of the news today, but uh, we'll carry on through these slides. What have you got here, Alex? Just good news from the west coast of Canada that in one of the most conservative and Christian sizable towns out on the west coast, Chilliwack in British Columbia, there has actually been some comeback on these uh, vicious public health orders that were served by robocops in that province, as people have probably seen in footage at the time. So the Chilliwack Progress is reporting that the Crown, so the public prosecutors in Canada, have dropped the charges against the pastors of various Christian denominations who had been accused of violating public health orders. In neighbouring Alberta, there was the more uh, renowned, because he was more fiery, Pastor Artur Pavlovsky, who's been repeatedly jailed and uh, and uh, victimised because he was more in their faces, but fines totalling more than half, uh, 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 more than fifty thousand Canadian dollars, have been dropped against these pastors. We see that these uh, churches were fined because they held services despite orders banning in-person services, and the Mounties came to respond to complaints of people criminally worshipping God in church. The pastors said, we're not going to pay these fines unless you know, extract them straight from our bank accounts and we'll see you in court. Uh, trials were scheduled for January, but uh, on May 4th and 6th, the Crown lifted the charges. It directed a stay of proceedings. So the Attorney General thought, oh, I've probably written off more than I can chew here. So this, again, uh, to show, shows the importance of, uh, as with the Tennessee example, coordinated campaigning because it took a constitutional campaigning group, the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms, to defend the pastors, simply to coordinate the information and to agree the best defence. So uh, well done there. All levels of government, said the lawyer for this JCCF group, all levels of government, including politicians, health officials and law enforcement, 
have the duty to respect, and this is what you don't hear anymore in the era of COVID, the constitutional rights and freedoms of Canadians or in any other country. The similar thing applies. In response to COVID, COVID, says the lawyer Marty Moore, there has been a serious failure of government officials and authorities in British Columbia to respect the equivalent of constitutional freedoms, namely charter freedoms of residents there. The province discriminated against houses of worship by way of the public health orders uh, because there were um, acceptances of people going to support group, if they could, up to 50 people could go to a support group, but not even five were a, allowed to assemble to worship God. So that's why the Justice Centre is committed to defending these people and their rights to at least equal treatment under the law. If you're going to ban churches, then you're going to have to go the whole hog and try to fight in court the gyms that have been totally closed down and uh, the support groups. But of course, they are regarded as harder targets because perhaps they're a bit more outspoken than churches. Uh, but in the form of these conservative churches in British Columbia, the crown bit off more than it could chew because they were prepared to have their day in court. Yeah, which uh, comes back to the uh, business that everybody should be trying to do as much as they can. Um, what about the next one? And then I'm, I'm, I think we're going to come more or less to the close of the, of the news today. This is also COVID related, and I'm going to start this playback silently. Uh, and we can just talk over it and Debbie do chip in whenever you want to. This is the German member of the European uh, Parliament, uh, Christina Anderson. Uh, she has an American surname because she, uh, she spent some years in the States. She's talking about the redacted, so blackened uh, sheets that she got from Pfizer when she wanted to know uh, what the contract was that they had signed secretly with the European Commission, the executive of the EU. This, of course, is in the supposedly democratic part of the EU, the parliament. She's talking about the massive restrictions of fundamental rights. We just saw an example of that from Canada, unworthy of a democracy, including job losses. Uh, we've experienced a redefinition of fundamental rights. According to the new definition, she says, these seem to be privileges rather than rights that governments may or may not grant. She's getting onto the issue of corruption, which is why I thought we'd have this today, even though it's a month or so ago that she was saying this in the European Parliament. Dubious role of so-called health, uh, public health professionals who, without much evidence, impose drastic measures. And this, these cut across the constitution and the whole of history, but it doesn't matter, apparently. She's talking about the EU institution's role, of course, because that's what she is as an MEP. She's talking about massive collateral damage that their policies have imposed. People dying of loneliness in old people's homes because their loved ones were not allowed to visit them. Fundamental rights that have been rolled back. Economic prosperity all lost. Open questions with regards to data protection. Threatening the surveillance of citizens by this green certificate. We just saw that Britain is still uh, planning for that in the background and getting rather embarrassed when it's called out on it. Planning for travel even within the EU. Uh, to be uh, contingent upon producing these, these passes. So she's saying that there's a basic rights voucher uh, that has been um, imposed. There's open questions about encroachments on people's physical integrity, you know, as in um, uh, allow us to swab your mouth or, or some other orifice. Uh, false claims regarding the safety of vaccines. This might have seemed a spicy thing for Anderson to say a month ago, but every day that's gone past since has borne her out more and more. And effectiveness, which as Debbie is uh, not tiring to point out, is not the same thing as efficacy. Refusal to investigate vaccine side effects. The European Medicine Agency's database, uh, one uh, which just like the MHRA's yellow card system is very unsearchable, she says, indicate that in the first seven months of the COVID vaccine rollout, 20 times more serious effects and 23 more deaths, times more deaths than all other vaccines combined in the previous 20 years. 
have been recorded uh, as a result of COVID-19 vaccines. Why isn't that being investigated, says Anderson. Then she talks about the marginalization and criminalization of critics of these anti-democratic measures, the unjustified harassment of individual social groups, older people or children as a group, economic sectors, the role of the World Health Organization and the question of its independence urgently need to be clarified. There's a bit more to, of this to roll. We'll just let people watch that silently. But Debbie, what, while this rolls, what, what, what's your uh, take on this? Have you found any British politicians who have been quite as comprehensive in this in any parliament? No. Um, the, the British politicians that I've had um, any commentary with at all were completely unaware of what was going on with the WHO. And when they were given the reassurance that, oh, no, there's no way that Britain would ever lose sovereignty, there's no way that the WHO would have this power, they simply dismissed it. And everything that she's saying there is absolutely spot on. And, you know, I am communicating with people, not always elderly, but people that are in care homes that are locked, still locked in. As we speak today, they're still locked in, these care homes. They can't get out. And they're witnessing atrocities going on around them, and they've got no voices. So this is really, really a, a hidden within a, 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 a sort of agenda, within a, a prison within a prison, if you like. And this this politician is highlighting everything that we're highlighting with passion, as we are too. So bravo to her. OK, Debbie, thank you very much for that. We are really out of time for the news today. And uh, I think the point I'd like to make is that really we've ended there on a lady who is trying to do something. And this is this is the key thing, isn't it? It's not enough to sit and watch what's happening. We've all got to try and do something about it. I think we'll save this for, for another time, uh, Alex, because we, we have a huge amount of information on what's happening in uh, medical matters at the moment. But uh, that lady is trying to do something. Sir Christopher Choke, one of the uh, brave MPs that are also trying to do things. So what do we need to do? We need to be coming forward, uh, praising the people who are doing the right things giving them support and ultimately challenging what's happening instead of just uh, accepting it. So I think there's a really good place to end on. It's doing the positive things and working to make something happen. So my and finally is this image, which is up in Times Square, the crossroads of the world in New York. COVID-19 jab injuries, and this is the American figures, 1,287,593 plus. So bannersforfreedom.com have put that up. So unlike many countries, you can actually now put this up in the most uh, visited thoroughfare in the country. Excellent. OK, well, let's just end on the point that uh, we could only be here today with UK Column News. Thanks to the support of viewers and listeners. So a very big thank you to everybody uh, helping us, donating us, subscribing. It's very much appreciated. Uh, we're working hard to expand what we're doing because the amount of uh, news keeps growing. Delighted to have uh, Alex Thompson with me in the studio today. That's only possible due to the tremendous support of our viewers. So to learn from you, Brian, how to get the slides more off pat. Uh, well, we won't go into all the grisly details about what went wrong today, but uh, we're not perfect. And occasionally there are some problems. Uh, but we are going to say to our viewers, thank you so much for everything you're doing. We are looking to expand with your continued support. That's what we intend. 
And we need to do this because uh, basically Boris's reset has got to be stopped. But he's freedom loving because he has a shock of yellow hair. Well, apparently we'll leave it there. Debbie, thanks for joining us. Thank you to all our viewers. Uh, no extra time today, I'm afraid, but uh, UK Column will be back tomorrow with the news and there should be an extra time tomorrow for you. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Bye bye.